Welcome to Business Casual, the weekly podcast of Poets and Quants. I'm John Byrne with Poets and Quants, of course, with my co-host, Caroline Diarty Edwards, the former director of admissions at NCAD and the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. And we have Maria Wickvilla, of course, the founder of Applicant Lab. Big week today on the rankings front, U.S. News has come out with its latest MBA ranking. I think when you look at the ranking, the biggest news really is most schools pretty much fell in line. You'll recall that at The Economist, when The Economist ranking came out, all M7 schools, that would be Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Chicago, Kellogg, Columbia, and MIT, boycotted that ranking, so they were excluded from it. When the Financial Times ranking came out, Five of the M7 schools boycotted the ranking. This time, only two schools boycotted, Wharton and MIT. And U.S. News would not exclude those schools. In fact, what U.S. News did was they incorporated the peer assessment and the recruiter assessment survey scores, which are current, with last year's data for those two schools and actually ranked them along with everyone else. And really, only Wharton and MIT were the only two big brands that were not cooperating with U.S. News. So it looks like, you know, the ranking is fairly credible as, as rankings go, although I know Caroline and Maria are no fans of rankings, and we'll get into that yet again. The winner uh, for the second year in a row is Stanford. Wharton was number two, Chicago Booth three, Northwestern Kellogg four. Harvard was in fifth place, tied with MIT. Uh, That is actually an improvement from last year when Harvard was sixth. Now, Maria, I know you really care about this, being an alum of that illustrious. No, I want my money back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, last year, you know, Harvard was had had his lowest rank ever in the history of the U.S. News rankings at six. So they did get uh, inch up there to five. But there's an interesting story here in the use of the statistics from a year earlier for Wharton and MIT. It, you know, it turns out that this was a, you know, a wild and wacky admission season and, of course, an employment season as well, given the pandemic. In fact, the accept rate at Stanford went up to 8.9%, so nearly 9%. That's like a 50% increase at Stanford from the more normal 6% acceptance rate that it has. And, uh, you know, Stanford enrolled a regular size class. Harvard which we all know actually enrolled the class that was something like 20% or so fewer than its normal intake, saw its accept rate go down to 9.2. So the gap between Stanford and Harvard is really small now. Stanford used to be much, much more selective. It's almost even. And that's kind of an interesting story. With Wharton and MIT, incidentally, because these stats uh, have generally gone up, acceptance rates GMATs have gone down, GPAs have gone down. Wharton and MIT, in a way, benefited when U.S. News used the year earlier stats. So, for example, you know, Wharton's average class GMAT score for this class that entered in the fall is 10 points below the year earlier score that U.S. News used to crank out its ranking. And its accept rate a year ago was 23%. Now it's more like 30% in this odd year. 
So clearly Wharton had a huge benefit as a result of actually not cooperating with U.S. News and U.S. News not bothering to consult the published class profile or the employment report, which were publicly available and out there for everyone to see. Obviously, we've talked about this before, and I'll say it again, rankings are highly controversial. They are imperfect measurements and often severely flawed. They're put together almost mindlessly by journalists who have no direct knowledge of business education. And yet the U.S. news ranking tends to get the most attention, even though it is U.S. centric and does not include uh, global schools, which actually is a big uh, deficient part of the U.S. news picture. Now, I'm sure when you counsel applicants, I bet you that you sometimes hear Caroline and Maria, you hear them say, well, let's say I was accepted to the number three school and the number eight school and the number 12 school, but I'm going to number three because it was ranked number three. Don't you hear that? Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's that's every every admissions consultant lives that every day or someone is like, well, I got into MIT and it's the perfect school for me on every conceivable level, but they're ranked fifth this year. And so <laughs> I don't know, like maybe it's not such a good school anymore. And you just want to I mean, you just want to throw a water balloon at them or something like you're just like, what is wrong with you? So, yeah, of course, you get people who who look at the rankings and just put so much weight into it when really these are, I, I mean, I, I haven't been able to see the actual raw data for, for some of the metrics such as the peer assessment or the recruiter assessment, but I'm sure that any differences between the top, say five or 10 programs is probably, you know, down to very small fractions or decimals uh, of a point. I mean, we're, you know, probably go, choosing between a, a school ranked 9.99 or 4.9 and another one called ranked at 4.89999, right? So I, I just, it's the, I think if people were to really look at how these rankings were calculated, I think they would realize that it's, it doesn't mean that a school that's ranked three, five, or sometimes even 10 positions lower, like, whoa, there's a huge world of difference there because there really isn't. Yeah, that's really true. That's a good point because, you know, U.S. News does publish the underlying scores that result in these numerical ranks, and you could see how close those underlying scores are. Some rankings don't do that, so you have no clue. But the truth is that in most rankings, the schools are closely clustered together in bunches. So you could, you could clearly see tiers of schools, and the tiers are probably more relevant in terms of thinking about the quality of the MBA programs, certainly, than the actual rank assigned to a school. Well, what you know, Caroline? Uh, what do you think about the fact that U.S. News still does not cover the global uh, market of business schools? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge hole, right? And it's a, a great source of frustration for the international schools, given that this ranking has so much influence, and they are just ignoring the rest of the world, right? I mean, it's this um, myopic perspective that, unfortunately, is is too common quite frankly, in the US, um, that um, people forget that there's a whole world out there beyond uh, American shores. So, uh, yeah, okay, it's the US US news, right? So, okay, they're, they're focusing on the US, but it does have a global influence. And a lot of you know candidates who are in the US and referring to this are perhaps ruling out great options for them because, because those names aren't even mentioned in this ranking. So, 
you know, quite frankly, I think the FT is a much better ranking than this one because this is ignoring so many wonderful schools. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, a lot of schools must be really kicking themselves that they actually participated this year, right? I mean, it's hilarious that that Wharton and, and MIT Sloan have done so well by refusing to play the game. You know, the rest of them must be thinking, God, you know, why didn't we withdraw? We would have, you know, had a, had a couple of... Uh, uh, position points boost if if we hadn't. So that's really a bizarre outcome. And it really as you, is. As you say, John, I think often, unfortunately, the people working on these rankings don't actually know a huge amount about the industry. And you know, you point out they could have pulled some better data here, right? It's Absolutely. not that difficult. No. And it's kind of extraordinary that they didn't, given the influence that this ranking has. And given the fact that they only had to do it for two schools, really. Right. I mean, it's not a huge uh, amount of work. <laughs> that makes it really easy. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they rewarded bad behavior. Oh, good job, guys. Oh, dear. I could have got an intern for them to do the job. I mean, it's not that difficult. Right. <laughs> now, I, I often find, frankly, the most uh, interesting part of these of this ranking in particular is all the data that's gathered in the fact that in one fell swoop, you know, you have apples to apples data that you can look at from the admission rates to the average GPAs, average GMATs, average salary and bonus, the uh, employment rate at graduation three months later. Uh, to, to me, just having all that data handy and being able to parse it if you are an informed user of rankings is a huge service to, to the industry and the public. Uh, so, so that goes beyond, you know, who's number five and who's number 12 and, and all that. that. That said, I think, you know, in the top 25, which is really where we're most focused, there were some interesting outcomes. Two business schools really stood out for their improved performance in the rank ranking. Georgetown University, which rose four places to place 21st in Carnegie Mellon, which moved up three spots to rank 16th. Dartmouth College's Tuck School found its way back into the top 10. Uh, it was 12 last year. And another interesting little thing. Uh, no, I don't believe this. And I'm sure, Maria, in, in your hometown there, you don't believe it either. But USC's Marshall School moved ahead of UCLA's Anderson School yes. for bragging rights as the best MBA program in L.A., I, I, yeah, I was, I was hoping you were going to bring that up. I mean, if, if, you know, if you want any evidence whatsoever that the people putting together these rankings, that it's, it's a joke to go by that, like, this is by far the, the biggest data point. I mean, Los in Los Angeles, there are essentially two major MBA programs and USC is a great school. I've had some lovely clients go there, but there is no doubt that in the eyes of employers, UCLA is seen as the much more rigorous program with much stronger student. I mean, it's it's a pretty big delta, right? It's not the delta between say Harvard and MIT. It's the delta, it's a it's a much bigger delta in the eyes of the industry. And there, and so when you think about USC, one of the reasons that their employment statistics don't go down is because that Trojan network is so, you know, they're like rabidly loyal to each other. Um, yeah. But unless you yourself went to USC, you're not going to, I, I, I hate to be this blunt, but you're not going to consider USC to be a better school than UCLA. It's not even, you, we talked, you talked a second ago about tiers of schools. Yeah. I think that they're viewed in actually separate tiers, not just separate rankings. So the fact 
fact that the numbers crunched this way, I think is, is pretty good evidence. There you go. It's there a flawed. It. That's yeah. an informed opinion, I'll tell you. Yes. Now, the other, other interesting piece is uh, the statistics on employment rates, obviously, because of the pandemic. Uh, people who didn't accept, let's say, a job offer or didn't get one out of their internships were uh, in a more dicey situation given what happened uh, with COVID. And a number of schools, a large number, in fact, reported lower employment rates three months after graduation. The best employment rate, and this is this last year, year before, University of Washington is forced to school of business. Now, they're in Seattle. They don't have a big class. And Seattle has been an incredible place for business with Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, and Costco and others in that marketplace. And 94.2, three months later, just to give you an idea of how that might compare with the schools that most of you may, in fact, be looking at, Stanford jobless rate, job rate, 85%, uh, Harvard, 83%. So that that really stands out. And I think it's mainly because smaller numbers of people probably taking more mainstream types of jobs uh, in uh, in Seattle, as opposed to one off job searches, looking at startups and VC firms and private equity companies and early stage companies for employment, which is often what a lot of Stanford and Harvard MBAs these days prefer. But nonetheless, really um, interesting data. The other weird thing, and I just don't, I can't quite believe this. And I'd like Maria's take on this as a Harvard alum. Now, Harvard's average salary and bonus, according to U.S. News, was 171785. And I believe that trails seven other business schools, seven. It even trails, believe it or not, Cornell. And now, just a little note, I, I, my reading of this is, you know, U.S. News takes a very narrow uh, look at compensation. What they do is they take base salary, and then they take a sign-on bonus, and then they take the percentage of students receiving a sign-on bonus, and they adjust the, the bonus number by the percentage so that you, you get a better average. What they don't include is other compensation that might be guaranteed. They wouldn't include equity. And the truth is that graduates of Harvard and Stanford uh, and many of these other top schools do get uh, equity awards, which is really hard to value to begin with. But wait, what, what's your take as to why the number at Harvard is below six other schools, including Stanford, of course, Wharton, Chicago Booth, Kellogg, Cornell, Dartmouth, and NYU Stern. Well, I mean, I, gosh, I wish I, I could have, I could have a whole bunch of data in front of me. I wonder if, if there's a, a, a moving away from perhaps some of the traditionally high paying finance jobs and, or possibly consulting jobs. I think maybe those, some of those are starting to lose their luster. People are, are, I think, increasingly preferring tech companies or things like VC you know, in some cases, I've heard that some VCs are, are embracing more of an apprenticeship type of model where perhaps the compensation at first, I mean, not all of them, obviously, some of them pay really well, but some of them perhaps may not pay as much. But then if you make the cut six months from now, then you get brought on board. So there's there's a whole bunch of different reasons why I think that's the case. I don't think that that's, I mean, what, John, do you mind telling me what's the delta? Like if, if, 
if if 171 or let's round it up to 172 is like the sixth lowest, what was the number one? I mean, oh, are we Stanford was one seven? What did I say? One seven five. Uh, so not so oh, one seven six. About five thousand uh, more per per graduate. So that's not a huge percentage mm-hmm. difference. No. We're not talking like no. it's not like a seven. You know, that could be a sample percent. error. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but, I you know. It's, the I, other thing I'll say is this: I think in addition to the fact that like, other guaranteed compensation and stock awards and other other things that are not calculated here by U.S. News play a role, those extra goodies are more likely to go the way of Harvard and Stanford uh, the, uh, and Wharton and, you know, the very top schools than they are other schools. And then there is the point, Maria, that you just raised. I, I think uh, more Harvard graduates are more likely to pursue careers that maybe in other schools wouldn't be pursued, at least in terms of the higher percentages, like jobs in nonprofit, NGOs, government jobs, jobs in uh, retail, e-commerce, marketing. It's a more diverse group of uh, employers that uh, the many MBAs at Harvard land with. So a, a lot of different reasons. Now, here's, here's the weirdest thing I, I found in this ranking. The school that had the single biggest ranking game, it actually moved up 36 places in June of last year, announced that it was temporarily halting its full-time MBA program. And I think they announced that it was paused, frankly, because maybe they didn't even have the the guts to say they're shutting it down completely. <laughs> um, Purdue University's Craner School um, in June said they're pausing the program after years of red ink, declining enrollment, declining applications, and a free fall, incidentally, in the U.S. News ranking. And then, lo and behold, the the class that is meant to be, frankly, the last class entered uh, has admission stats that were so strong and the employment outcomes of its graduates last year were so strong that it improved by 36 places to rank 44th from 80th. How's that for irony? Well, I think they need to change their minds about putting it on pause, right? It sounds like. Yeah, as well as the fact that, of course, we all know that, you know, MBA applications to full-time programs exploded in the pandemic. And the expectation is that they'll continue to grow up, go up as uh, more international applicants come back into the U.S. market uh, Mm. to the change in administration. So a really weird and funny kind of outcome that the school that has the largest single ranking game is a school that has basically put its MBA program on ice. And to give you a sense of how big a gain that was, you know, 36 spots, that's huge. The second biggest gain was 16 and recorded by Fordham University's Gabelli School. So there you have it. You know, we have full coverage at Poets and Quants of the ranking. Uh, Maria and Caroline, uh, just for applicants, what general advice would you give in when, when someone looks at the ranking, what, what should they be looking for? What should they be aware of? I mean, not to treat this with uh, too much reverence. <laughs> uh, what advice would you both give? I think the rankings can be part of your initial research. I would encourage candidates to delve into understanding the methodology and really scrutinizing the data because 
you know, as you've both said, there's a lot that you can learn from that data. And, um, you know, there's some interesting um, information in there that you might not otherwise find on the school websites and so on. So so I, I think as part of your initial research to understand the different schools, it has its role. But don't take it at face value. Don't just look at the the, the headlines actually do spend the time to to understand the methodology and understand whether that's relevant to you, whether the criteria that they're looking at are actually important criteria for you and, and look at that data. And then but, but that should just be one part of your research. Right. You should be doing, you know, a lot of other investigation into um, understanding which schools are the right fit for you. Um, and once you've done that, forget about the rankings. As Maria said, it's ridiculous that once people have applied to schools and got offers, then they're agonizing over, oh, you know, MIT went from this ranking to this ranking this this year. And so maybe I shouldn't accept that offer after all. I mean, publishers like to shake things up every year to make a story. Otherwise, no one would read it, right? They're, they're, they're in the business of attracting eyeballs and, and they've got to make a story by by shaking it up every year. So they're, they're, the actual worth of a school does not vary dramatically from year to year uh, and so once you figured out the the right schools for you to apply to just forget about the rankings maria yeah i i completely agree i think you know for example i don't think that the average applicant realizes that for the U.S. news ranking, about, I think, 25% of that ranking is the peer assessment, which I believe it asks deans or sort of high-level faculty at the schools, like, what do you think about the other schools? And I just think that if you, in to my mind, a lot of deans at business schools, what they care about is things like publishing and research and academics and how many journals did your professor's paper get published in? And that has nothing to do with, you know, that teacher who published that amazing article might be a terrible teacher or maybe, you know, like it's, it's, it's sort of silly that that's a quarter of it. I mean, that's sure. Let's, let's throw in and ask everyone what they think about their competition. Sure. But for it to be 25% and you're asking people who themselves don't work in the, the sort of quote unquote real job market. And many of them have been career long academics, <laughs> like what? So I just, that yeah. part of it, I think that's when I point that out to people, I, I like to think that that sort of helps shake them up and not worship these rankings quite so much. Uh, if you are going to use the US news rankings, the one that you should look at is not the main rankings, but they do sort of break them out by specialization. Yes. And I think that the good news with that is that it often shines a light on programs that may not otherwise be on your radar, or, or it might help dispel myths such as Wharton's only a finance school, like actually Wharton's really good at marketing and et cetera, et cetera. Or if you're really interested in real estate, you know, the best school for someone who wants to work in accounting is not necessarily the best school for real estate and vice versa. So if, if you're going to use them at all, I would use them in the specialties, but. Really good point. And we have a piece on Poets of Quantum on the specialty rankings, on the part-time MBA rankings, which of course we covered part-time MBA programs last time and uh, a full analysis of the current ranking and, and the silly things and, and the takeaways that you should be aware of. I, you know, I don't want to uh, end the podcast without tipping my hat to a person who passed away this past week. NCAD lost one of its founding fathers, Claude Jansen, who really was instrumental in the creation of the school 
back in the 1950s. You know, just to give you the, the basics, Claude went to Harvard Business School in 1953. You know, that was the year I was born. He graduated in 1955. But what happened, what happened while he was there is he struck up a friendship with a professor whose name was Georges Dorio. And uh, Dorio was the first French Harvard Business School graduate and its first French professor. And Claude felt strongly that Europe needed a Harvard Business School equivalent. And it was pretty a radical notion at the time because, number one, there were no business schools in Europe at all to speak of. And the MBA degree in Europe, frankly, was barely known. It was not accepted. It was not on anyone's uh, radar. And he came out of Harvard wanting with this dream and with a few of his uh, compatriots, other Harvard MBA students from France, who he went to school with, he made it happen. Four years after graduating in 1955, the first classes at NCIAD were held in 1959. And when the people were uh, having their first class, Claude sent a message to Dorio saying, the ship is launched, 57 registered today, opening ceremonies completed, all engines turning. And we all know what has happened since then, uh, which is, NCAA turning into a totally world-class business school with campuses in four different locations, France, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and San Francisco. It's a university with 165 faculty members from 41 countries. In any given year, it enrolls 1,300 students and graduate degree programs and more than 11,000 executives in executive education courses. And you can trace all of this back to a person who left France to go to America to attend Harvard Business School and came away with the notion that, you know, Europe deserved to have a school with the influence and the prestige of his new alma mater. Now, in the years that you worked for NCAD, I wonder, Caroline, if you ever had the opportunity to collide with Claude. Yes, I did. He was offered a round. He was on the board for, um, you know, for, for decades, I believe. Uh, you know, he was honorary chairman of the board right up until he died. So he was very much involved of the life, in the life of the school. And, you know, what an extraordinary legacy, as you said. And, and what I think is really admirable about what, what he did and, and, and Georges Dorio is that the vision that they had of bringing together students from from different countries. And of course, initially, as you said, you know, that was a vision of bringing people together from across Europe. And, um, you know, over the decades that that expanded to, to encompass the world. And that is such a, you know, relevant vision today. And it has, you know, been incredibly powerful as, as sort of distinguishing INSEAD in the market as this sort of beacon of multiculturalism and, and seeking to bring people together from all over the world so that they can work together effectively and, you know, have a positive impact in, in um, helping companies and organizations operate effectively across borders and, and, and embrace cultural diversity and, and, you know, enable students to, you know, work effectively in a, in a global marketplace and you know, it wasn't a global marketplace when when they started, right? The 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 world was very different in those days, true. and so I right, think it's true. extraordinary that they had that vision at that time, 
And, you, you know, it's really proven to be an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful formula that is, is even more relevant today than, than it was back then. So, so true. In- incredible what, what he did. And yes, he was, you know, very much engaged in the life of the school and a l- lovely man, very approachable. So, so, you know, sad day for Incien, but but what an extraordinary legacy that he left. And what a wonderful thing to see the magnificent success of something that was just an idea in your head and to see it grow up and to mature and to become so influential uh, in the world mm. and graduate management education. And, and as you point out, you know, he, he also had the smarts and so did Dorio, of course, not to want to simply duplicate or copy the Harvard MBA experience, but rather to allow Harvard to inspire and inform a totally different uh, type of school, a more international school, a school that was more diverse, a school that drew on cultures all over the world, a school with an MBA program that was accelerated and only 10 months long compared to the Harvard experience of two years. So it's not like he came out of there with the notion that, oh, I'm going to create a Harvard MBA experience in France. He used what he experienced to reinvent what an MBA could be which is even more a powerful notion that we have to give him credit for, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, INSEAD pioneered the one-year MBA, and, you know, that was an extraordinary innovation as well that is also, you know, as, as relevant today as, as it was back then and, and, you know, hugely appreciated by people who appreciate the opportunity to get that, that wonderful education in, in such an efficient format. So, yeah, incredible that they figured all of that out 60 years ago. That's really true. I think his legacy will live on as long as the NCOD spirit does. So, hey, thank you, uh, Caroline. Thank you, Maria. There you have it. U.S. News and a tribute to someone who accomplished a great deal in his life. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast.